Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. On today's episode, we will read Chapter 3 of Section 1 of Part 3. So we're in Part 3 out of four parts of the Catechism. Recall each part has two sections. Section 1 is kind of a general discussion. Section 2 gets into the specifics. Um, So we're in Part 3, the morality section, uh, or the morality part. Section 1, which is a general discussion of morality. So um, we'll talk today about law. And then uh, sections are often divided into chapters and then chapters divided into articles. So we'll we'll discuss chapter three today, which is uh, entitled God's Salvation, Law and Grace. And um, this is leading to section two, which goes through each of the specific commandments. So it's a, a great approach. We lay the foundation, talk about some general concepts, and then we're able to understand more deeply the um, more specific, in this case, commandments, or in the last part, the specific sacraments. And part one, what did we talk about? The creed, so the specific beliefs. And then in part four, we'll talk about prayer. So we'll specifically talk about the Our Father line by line in section two of part four. So... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was reading, I, I wake up many mornings and I will begin my prayer time by reading Bishop Barron's daily gospel reflection. So Bishop Barron, um, founder of the Word on Fire Institute, allows people or has an option for people to receive in their inbox each day a daily gospel reflection. And at the top, there's the scripture, the actual scripture passage. And what I'll often do is I'll, I'll open up my email, I'll read the reflection, I'll look at the scripture passage, and then I'll go to my physical Bible and look up the scripture passage, read through it, just pray with it, um, do Lexio Divina, note what words and phrases jump out to me, and then oftentimes I'll I'll spend a couple of minutes just writing down, you know, that word or that phrase, and then I'll I'll just pray with it for a few minutes, and then try to carry it with me throughout the day. So uh, a couple weeks ago, his reflection he, he had a he had a series of reflections. Um, I want to say it was yeah a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, where one of the readings had to do with the two demoniacs and um, you know they come to before Christ Christ delivers them delivers these people of their demons and Bishop Barron's reflection had to do with um, like what in us uh, so he he equated the demons to that those voices within us that are are protecting our fragile little ego so you know what in us and our sinful selves is kind of um like clinging to that which keeps our ego secure and when we sense christ passing by those little voices say like go away stay away um because we want to we we want to be in control we want to you know lay hold of of what what we find to be important and maybe not what God finds to be important or knows to be important. So anyway, one of the reflections one day was just basically pay attention to, um, you know, uh, Christ's teaching and what teachings cause the little voice inside of us or voices inside of us to say like, stay away. We don't like that. Like, I don't want to think about that. And then following that was um, a reflection where he said, he said, we often, 
recall and then talk about passages that we love in Scripture. So when I read that, I immediately thought of, of the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, where Christ says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I just love that passage. As the reflection went on, he said, pay attention to not the passages you love hearing and talking about, but pay attention to the passages you don't like and maybe even avoid because they're uncomfortable or you don't want that teaching to touch your life or call you out of whatever situation you're in at the moment. So he ended the reflection by saying, you know, think about what passage you dislike and then pray with that and ask God to enter into you know, that, that part of your life. And so when I read that, I immediately thought fasting. I hate fasting. I just love my cozy little drinks and my yummy little foods. And um, I just, on, on days, that, days that I fast or try to fast, you know, uh, typically one will fast on bread and water. So I'm the kind of faster who will um, fast on an everything bagel double toasted with butter and cream cheese. And then my, so that's my bread. And then my water is like a grapefruit seltzer with just like a little splash of orange juice. So I'm like, yeah, Lord, like I'm really offering it up today. And Jesus is probably like, thanks, like you're living the high life. That's not fasting. So when it comes to fasting, and I find this when I when I hear the gospel passage or when I'm reading through the Bible and I hit on those passages where, where Christ says, especially when he says like, you know, these demons can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. So I think of that one passage where the uh, the apostles are are trying, you know, they're going from town to town and um, they try to heal this one demoniac and they can't. And then Christ comes in and does and they say to him like, Lord, like what what are we doing wrong basically? Like why could you do this and we couldn't? And number one, he's God. Um, but number two, Christ responds by saying, you know, the certain things can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. Um, so when I read this reflection, I immediately thought of fasting. So I go to the top of the reflection and the gospel passage is there. I think it was in the gospel of Matthew. I take out my physical Bible and I flip to the gospel passage of the day. And what is the heading but the question about fasting? I was like, okay, Lord, I get it. You're calling me to grow in, uh, you know, this area of my life to relinquish control, to allow you to enter in and take over and do these these beautiful, awesome things you want to do in and through me. And, um, you know, these things are, are better than Grande Pike's Place uh, Starbucks coffee with half and half and and uh, better than Josh Cabernet Sauvignon, which, by the way, shout out to Donna Cushing, a Catholic Light podcast listener, who, God bless you, Donna. She heard, you know, many episodes ago, I referenced Josh Cabernet wine. And uh, through a friend, she's in a neighboring parish, through a friend, she, she bought me a bottle of Josh, gave it to the friend who then brought it to me at, at Daily Mass. So thanks, Donna. That was super thoughtful. And Dan and I enjoyed it together. So thank you. God bless you. Um, so yeah, I just really love my, you know, my fun and, and festive and, and comfy things. And when Christ calls me to fast, it's like, huh, then like, what am I going to be filled with? And that leaves a little space for me to like think about and do uh, other things. And it's like, ah, it's easier just to like fill it and then move on with my day. So, um, so I, I think that's a cool exercise for all of us. And by cool, I mean like not cool because it makes us uncomfortable, but cool because it affords us the opportunity, the space for Christ to enter in and do new things, more big and beautiful things in us rather than, um, you know, Starbucks and red wine are not 
bad things by any means. They're great things. But when it, when I cling to those things as though they're more important than they are, then I miss out on some of the the grander, greater things that God has in store for me that he could be doing in and through me. And so I'd like to start with, with paragraph 1949, the first paragraph from from today's reading selection, which says this, called to beatitude, but wounded by sin, man stands in need of salvation from God. So called to beatitude, every single human being who ever lived is living and ever will live is called to beatitude, to happiness from now until forever. So God wants us to be happy. We as human beings are made for happiness. But Wounded by sin. So think back to our discussion of original sin, Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, cre- um, excuse me, commit original sin. And that, that humanity they inherited on behalf of all of us is, is wounded. It's hurt because we are, we are not made for sin. And so that, that sin hurts, disrupts, damages our humanity. The good news is Christ enters in and repairs it, but we still suffer from from that that little wound of concupiscence, um, that that inclination to sin that was not there from the outset, that was not part of original man and original woman. And so, as paragraph 1949 says, man and woman stand in need of salvation from God. So God is creator, we are creature, and we are wounded creatures, and so we need a savior. We need God because we can't, as finite human beings who have turned away from God, we we cannot um, bridge that chasm. We cannot pick ourselves up from the bootstraps out of sin and that inclination to sin and bring ourselves back to the infinite God. We need God to, to bridge that gap t- uh, for us, which he does, thank God. Praise you, Jesus. Um, and so that's a great starting point because, um, you know, one, one approach is just to ignore the reality, not recognize the reality, and be on our way. But if it's a reality, if our humanity truly has been wounded by sin and we truly do need a savior, then why not take a look at, see, and then embrace that reality so that we can be healed, lifted up, forgiven, and on our way on a much higher plane? in a much greater way, rather than just muddling along, pretending that those things are not there and this is not our situation. We recognize like, whoa, okay, here is where we are, and uh, Christ, we need you, so please come, Lord Jesus, help us. It's kind of like the, uh, let's say we could take the reality approach or we could take the emperor with no clothes approach. Um, So you're you're probably familiar with the story of the emperor with no clothes. The the emperor uh, paraded around the city, town, kingdom, uh, in his underwear, saying, you know, how, how elegant are my clothes and how beautiful my robes. And um, many of the people were like, yeah, yeah, oh, gorgeous. We love it. Oh, you are just wonderful and your clothes are wonderful, even though they saw the reality that he uh, was wearing no clothes. And it's not until someone speaks up and says like, ah, you have no clothes, that the reality is recognized. So I think um, so many of us, don't necessarily do it uh, like consciously, 
oftentimes we're kind of lulled into, so, so the ways of the world, you know, do not recognize God, do not recognize sin, the reality of sin, or that we need a savior from that sin. And oftentimes we're kind of lulled into the ways of society, the ways of the world, because it's easier and, uh, you know, a little dreamier and a little more comfy rather than stopping, recognizing, going against the current um, and seeing the reality, proclaiming the truth that like, hey, we something's messed up here and we need help. Also within the last couple of weeks, uh, one of the gospel passages included uh, this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees where the Pharisees say like, whoa, why are you dining with tax collectors and prostitutes? And Jesus says, um, you know, those who are well, do not need a physician, but the sick do, and I am the divine physician who has come to the sick. And so th- the reality is, the truth is, that we are sick. Our humanity is sick. As G.K. Chesterton says, you know, that the only um, teaching of the church that can be empirically proven without a doubt is the the teaching on original sin. He said, open any newspaper. Um, was there TV at the time of G.K. Chesterton? I don't know. Flip on any TV and read any headline, listen to any headline, and you'll see that original sin is alive and well. Um, the world is broken and in need of a savior. So like it was you know, a little uncomfortable for me to read that Bishop Barron gospel reflection and then think about the passage I did not like reading and then pray with the idea of what I didn't like, like, okay, Lord, I know I I should probably fast more. I should probably pray for the grace to embrace fasting. Um, It's not easy to, for the world, to look at its current state and recognize, like, we are so far gone and we need help. But if we do, um, God can enter in more fully and help us turn back uh, or help us step on the path that leads to our ultimate beatitude, the beatitude that is meant for every man and every woman. Another approach, kind of practical approach we could each take personally is this. I was on a retreat one time with Father Matt Guckin, this wonderful priest I've mentioned a number of times. And through during the retreat, um, at one point, the parable of the prodigal son was read. It was part of the retreat. And he talked about how that he, he talked about that part where the older brother says after the prodigal son has returned, the father's throwing the party, the older son is you know, outside the house of, of festivities and the father comes out to him and says like, son, you know, why are you not joining the party? And he says, uh, the older son says, you know, how could you welcome back this son who swallowed up his inheritance with prostitution? So he specifically names prostitution. And as Father Matt preached on this homily, he said, notice that nowhere else in the scripture passage does it say, does it talk about prostitution. It doesn't say, we don't know for sure, that the younger son, um, you know, spent his inheritance or part of his inheritance on prostitutes. But the older son accuses him of that. And so Father Matt conjectured that uh, perhaps it was because the older son struggled with lust or maybe had spent some of his inheritance on on prostitutes. And so he was accusing his brother of what he himself struggled with, with of that with which he struggled. Um, and isn't that, he, Father Matt then went on to say, isn't that often the way that we accuse of others or we decry in the world those things with which we, personally, individually struggle. It's the old, like, remove the beam from your own eye before you start, like, whining about the the splinter in your your other, your brother's eye. 
So again, as another activity, maybe in addition to or another exercise this week, in addition to thinking about a scripture passage that we dislike and then praying with that, um, let's think about maybe something we decry or rail against in others or society at large. Like, I can't believe the world, you know, da-da-da-da-da, or I can't believe people, X, Y, and Z. And then let's pray for the grace. Let's ask God to give us the grace to root that out in us. Um, to help us confess that, be forgiven of that, and then be detached from that, to let go of that um, so that, again, Christ can enter in more fully to every little nook and cranny of our heart, our soul, our mind, our body, our life, and um, truly reign as, as our Savior and our Lord. Paragraph 1950 goes on to say, The moral law is the work of divine wisdom. Its biblical meaning can be defined as fatherly instruction, God's pedagogy. It prescribes for man the ways, the rules of conduct that lead to the promised beatitude. It proscribes or prohibits the ways of evil which turn him away from God and his love. It is at once firm in its precepts and in its promises worthy of love. At once firm in its precepts and in its promises worthy of love. So the precepts are what's the, the moral law as it's spelled out for us point by point. Uh, is firm. So this is the truth, which corresponds to reality. We can choose to recognize it or ignore it. But if we recognize these firm, clearly laid out precepts, uh, the promises are worthy of love. How beautiful is that? The, the promises of the moral law, that which flows from our following of the moral law, are worthy of, is worthy of love. So the moral law is not only not harsh, oftentimes uh, morality, rules, laws, the church, um, these are all portrayed as like harsh and stringent and rigid. Uh, not only are they not harsh, they're, they're firm, um, they're good, and they're even lovable. And this moral law is given to every man and every woman because every man and every woman is made for beatitude. Paragraph 1956 says, the natural law, oh, excuse me, I skipped over, bum, ba, da, bum. paragraph 1952 um, lays out the different expressions of the moral law. There are different expressions of the moral law, all of them interrelated. Eternal law, which is the source in God of all law. Natural law, revealed law, comprising the old law and the new law, or the law of the gospel. Finally, civil and ecclesiastical laws. So the, uh, the moral law begins with the eternal law, okay, the source in God of all law. Then we have natural law, which no matter where we are, where we're from, what time, what age, um, our beliefs, our lack of beliefs, the, the natural law <laughs> comes along with our humanity as part of, of every man and every woman. And then... Um, uh, we read about revealed law, so that specifically is a part of divine revelation God reveals through the Old Testament or the Old Law, New Testament, New Law, um, the, the revealed law. And then finally, civil and ecclesiastical law or uh, like civic state and uh, church laws. So 1956 says, The natural law, present in the heart of each man and established by reason, is universal in its precepts and its authority extends to all men. So again, whether or not we recognize this reality, uh, the natural law or the, the law of nature, that which comes along with our humanity, um, is present in the heart of each man and each woman, 
it's established by reason, so it is rational and can be understood by a rational intellect. And it's universal in its precepts and its uh, its authority. So it's it's within all of us and it's for all of us. Again, whether we choose to recognize it or not. Um, growing up, my mom was a big Diet Coke drinker, and. Uh, I think the sweetener used in Diet Coke is aspartame, and I think since the the 80s and the 90s, people have come to realize that 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 fake sugars like aspartame um, are often linked to cancer. So um, I could choose to ignore that reality and say I don't believe that aspartame causes cancer. Okay, well, great, it's still at work in my system, potentially causing cancer. So I could say I don't believe in the natural law or that there is such a thing as this law written on the human heart. Um, That's great. I could choose to ignore it or disregard it or disbelieve it, Um, but it's still present. It's still a reality. It's still there, and it's still binding on me. The good news is if I choose to recognize it, recognize the truth, the reality, and live in accordance with it, then I am more... um, I am in a, a better way using my humanity so as to achieve its its end, its goal, its purpose, which is happiness. Paragraph 1959 says, The natural law, the creator's very good work, provides the solid foundation on which man can build the structure of moral rules to guide his choices. Okay, so the natural law, the creator's very good work, gives us the foundation on which we can Uh, build a structure for our moral choices. It also provides the indispensable moral foundation for building the human community. So the natural law, rather than being something that law, rather than being something that that separates and divides us, you know, so many people will um, say and then kind of parrot that saying that like, you know, religion leads to wars. Um, The the natural law uh, is what allows us to say like, murder is against the law Um, because we know intuitively we know in virtue of being human beings that we should not take the life of another and so in all agreeing to that as a a human community or as a human society we can build our community on this this more sure and steady foundation I just want to end the first half of this episode with a word on the Old Testament and the New Testament so this Our reading selection for today in the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 1949 through 1986. Uh, We talk about the um, the revealed law coming to us through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's a handful of paragraphs which talk about the Old Testament. Um, The New Testament surpasses, elevates, fulfills the Old Testament. Did I say that right? New fulfills old. And um, oftentimes there's this misunderstanding that it was like, you know, these were the rules in the Old Testament. Jesus then comes along and kiboshes them and says like, hey, follow this new way. Um, But as the New Testament itself says, as Jesus himself says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Oftentimes we get this image of the Old Testament God being kind of like harsh and, um, you know, rule giving, commandment giving, and then uh, the New Testament God or Jesus being like this peaceful kind of permissive hippie, like it's all good. Um, 
I had a number of students over the year ask me if, and this was before marijuana was was legal in a number of states. Um, they asked me if if Jesus smoked pot. I'm like, I don't think so. Why are you asking that? Because he had long hair and wore sandals. <laughs> like these things don't always go together. Um, so oftentimes we picture the New Testament as like peace, you know, do whatever you want. It's all good. But the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament and the New Testament go together, and. Um, the, the new does not abolish or get rid of the old. So let's think of the old as that, um, that, that preparatory phase, uh, that phase of life, uh, that phase in salvation history where we are learning to crawl and then we're pulling up on things and we're standing and then we're walking so that in the New Testament we can run run to the end goal and, um, you know, stand with, with Jesus Christ, the victor. Guess who has someone in her household that just learned to crawl and is now pulling up on things, standing and getting ready to walk? Yay, Lucy. Um, so the Old Testament, when, when Jesus comes in the New Testament to fulfill, elevate, complete the Old Testament, he doesn't do away with the Old Testament as though those rules, you know, no longer apply. So, uh, we're still not allowed to murder. Uh, we're still not allowed to steal. The, those stand from the Old Testament. But as Jesus says uh, during his Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, uh, excuse me, his Sermon on the Mount, um, you know, it, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And now I say, do not even lust after a woman. Uh, it was said in the Old Testament, do not kill. I say, do not even hold anger in your heart. Um, and so it sounds like, so contrary to this idea of Jesus being, again, a peaceful, like, permissive hippie, um, it's actually harder uh, what he's calling us to. Like, don't kill, but also, like, don't have terrible thoughts in your mind and heart where, like, you're, like, thinking of another person as though, you know, you might kill them. Um, and so he he takes up uh, his reign, sovereignty, the throne, not only in our, our physical actions, but even in our, our thoughts and, um, you know, that which goes on in the, the inner life, not just the outer life, but the, the inner life of, of man and woman. Um, again, not so that he can just give us rules and make sure we obey them, but because this, this elevates us, this brings us into, uh, a higher realm, a greater, grander living, and the happiness, the beatitude for which we were made. Sophia just finished first grade, so we did a lot of work the last couple of years with sight words and learned terms like, you know, homonyms and homophones and um, when to put, uh, you know, make a, a word that ends with an F into plural words that end with V-E-S, so how to go from shelf to shelves and um, you know, all, all these, these little building blocks that help with, with reading and language and expression so that one day, God willing, she will come to understand the iambic pentameter and syntax and diction and double entendre of, you know, Shakespeare's beautiful poetry and, and, uh, prose or plays. Um, and if, in first grade, we were just to throw children into or hand them Shakespeare. Um, you know, they, they might like work out some of it, but they're not going to appreciate the the beauty and be able to to step out into this this greater, grander realm of of truth and beauty and goodness. And so we, um, you know, we give them the building blocks so that step by step they can work up to that. And so in an analogous way, uh, God does the same for us. He gives us the the basics. He writes the the natural law on the human heart. 
He then, uh, through Moses, expresses that natural law in a very, very basic commandments um, so that one day, and by his grace and um, the thanks to the divine pedagogy or divine way of teaching, which is gradual, little by little, God continues to reveal himself, reveal the truth to us, we can one day appreciate the beauty of the Beatitudes. Okay, if, if uh, God came to the Israelites and said, you know, blessed are uh, the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom. It's like, what? I'm like, we're not quite ready for that. Um, and so paragraph 1967 and 1968, well, and with these two paragraphs, uh, beautifully expresses this. 1967 says, The law of the gospel fulfills, refines, surpasses, and leads the old law to its perfection. In the Beatitudes, the new law fulfills the divine promises by elevating and orienting them toward the kingdom of heaven. So by elevating and orienting them toward the kingdom of heaven, lifting us up to something greater and pointing us in the direction of this expansive horizon, which has, you know, more and more. Wait, there's more. More for your humanity, and it's awesome. Paragraph 1968 says, The law of the gospel fulfills the commandments of the law. The Lord's Sermon on the Mount, far from abolishing or devaluing the moral prescriptions of the old law, releases their hidden potential and has new demands arise from them. It reveals their entire divine and human truth. So it's as though God helped us accent, uh, excuse me, access 10% of our humanity, 10% of that beatitude. I'm just using an analogy here. And then over time, he's opening us up to access 100%. Uh, there's more. And it's awesome. And this is for every man and every woman. So let's end with uh, uh, a brief prayer here. Lord, please help us to view your law, to view morality not as burdens, as um, do's and don'ts, um, something heavy to, to carry around or, or things that prevent us from, from having fun or living, living great adventurous lives. But please help us to see these as things that open us up to the greater, the more, all that you have in store for us. Please help us to pay attention to um, perhaps scripture passages we don't especially like, uh, rules or teachings we don't especially like, or things in others we see and think like, ooh, that is not attractive. And then please help us to look inward by your grace with your help and invite you into those areas of our hearts, our minds, our lives. Uh, give us the grace to let go of each of these things, to place them at your feet, so that we may be filled with your, your grace, your mercy, your love, so that ultimately we can experience the happiness, the beatitude that you have for each and every one of us. We thank you for loving us, for having a plan for us, a plan for all of humanity, and we pray that all will come to know you and love you and experience that, that beatitude that you have in store for every man and every woman. We offer this up in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take a brief break and return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 1949 through 1986. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and 
welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1949 through 1986. Chapter 3, God's Salvation, Law, and Grace. Called to beatitude but wounded by sin, man stands in need of salvation from God. Divine help comes to him in Christ through the law that guides him and the grace that sustains him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Article 1, The Moral Law. The moral law is the work of divine wisdom. Its biblical meaning can be defined as fatherly instruction, God's pedagogy. It prescribes for man the ways, the rules of conduct that lead to the promised beatitude. It prescribes the ways of evil which turn him away from God and his love. It is at once firm in its precepts and in its promises worthy of love. Law is a rule of conduct enacted by competent authority for the sake of the common good. The moral law presupposes the rational order, established among creatures for their good and to serve their final end, by the power, wisdom, and goodness of the Creator. All law finds its first and ultimate truth in the eternal law. Law is declared and established by reason as a participation in the providence of the loving God, Creator and Redeemer of all. Such an ordinance of reason is what one calls law. Alone among all animate beings, man can boast of having been counted worthy to receive a law from God. As an animal endowed with reason, capable of understanding and discernment, he is to govern his conduct by using his freedom and reason, in obedience to the one who has entrusted everything to him. That comes from Tertullian. There are different expressions of the moral law, all of them interrelated. Eternal law, the source in God of all law. Natural law, revealed law comprising the old law and the new law or law of of the gospel. Finally, civil and ecclesiastical laws. The moral law finds its fullness and its unity in Christ. Jesus Christ is in person the way of perfection. He is the end of the law, for only he teaches and bestows the justice of God. For Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. The natural moral law. Man participates in the wisdom and goodness of the Creator, who gives him mastery over his acts and the ability to govern himself with a view to the true and the good. The natural law expresses the original moral sense, which enables man to discern by reason the good and the evil, the truth and the lie. The natural law is written and engraved in the soul of each and every man, because it is human reason ordaining him to do good and forbidding him to sin. But this command of human reason would not have the force of law if it were not the voice and interpreter of a higher reason to which our spirit and our freedom must be submitted. The divine and natural law shows man that the way to follow so as to practice the good and attain his end. The natural law states the first and essential precepts which govern the moral life. It hinges upon the desire for God and submission to him, who is the source and judge of all that is good, as well as upon the sense that the other is one's equal. Its principal precepts are expressed in the Decalogue. This law is called natural, not in reference to the nature of rational beings, but because reason which decrees it properly belongs to human nature. Where then are these rules written, if not in the book of that light we call the truth? In it is written every just law. From it, the law passes into the heart of the man who does justice, not that it migrates into it, but that it places its imprint on it, like a seal on a ring that passes onto wax without leaving the ring. That's from St. Augustine. The natural law is nothing other than the light of understanding placed in us by God. Through it, we know what we must do and what we must avoid. God has given this light or law at the creation. That's from St. Thomas Aquinas. The natural law present in the heart of each man and established by reason is universal in its precepts and its authority extends to all men. 
It expresses the dignity of the person and determines the basis for his fundamental rights and duties. For there is a true law, right reason. It is in conformity with nature, is diffused among all men, and is immutable and eternal. Its orders summon to duty. Its prohibitions turn away from offense. To replace it with a contrary law is a sacrilege. Failure to apply even one of its provisions is forbidden. No one can abrogate it entirely. That comes from Cicero. Application of the natural law varies greatly. It can demand reflection that takes account of various conditions of life according to places, times, and circumstances. Nevertheless, in the diversity of cultures, the natural law remains as a rule that binds men among themselves and imposes on them, beyond the inevitable differences, common principles. The natural law is immutable and permanent throughout the variations of history. It subsists under the flux of ideas and customs and supports their progress. The rules that express it remain substantially valid. Even when it is rejected in its very principles, it cannot be destroyed or removed from the heart of man. It always rises again in the life of individuals and societies. Theft is surely punished by your law, O Lord, and by the law that is written in the human heart, the law that iniquity itself does not efface. That's from St. Augustine. The natural law, the creator's very good work, provides the solid foundation on which man can build the structure of moral rules to guide his choices. It also provides the indispensable moral foundation for building the human community. Finally, it provides the necessary basis for the civil law with which it is connected, whether by a reflection that draws conclusions from its principles or by additions of a positive and juridical nature. The precepts of natural law are not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error. The natural law provides revealed law and grace with a foundation prepared by God and in accordance with the work of the Spirit. The old law. God, our creator and redeemer, chose Israel for himself to be his people and revealed his law to them, thus preparing for the coming of Christ. The law of Moses expresses many truths naturally accessible to reason. These are stated and authenticated within the covenant of salvation. The old law is the first stage of revealed law. Its moral prescriptions are summed up in the Ten Commandments. The precepts of the Decalogue lay the foundations for the vocation of man fashioned in the image of God. They prohibit what is contrary to the love of God and neighbor and prescribe what is essential to it. The Decalogue is a light offered to the conscience of every man to make God's call and ways known to him and to protect him against evil. God wrote on the tables of the law what men did not read in their hearts. That's from St. Augustine. According to Christian tradition, the law is holy, spiritual, and good, yet still imperfect. Like a tutor, it shows what must be done, but does not of itself give the strength, the grace of the Spirit to fulfill it. Because of sin, which it cannot remove, it remains a law of bondage. According to St. Paul, its special function is to denounce and disclose sin, which constitutes a law of concupiscence in the human heart. However, the law remains the first stage on the way to the kingdom. It prepares and disposes the chosen people and each Christian for conversion and faith in the Savior God. It provides a teaching which endures forever, like the Word of God. The old law is a preparation for the gospel. The law is a pedagogy and a prophecy of things to come. It prophesies and presages the work of liberation from sin, which will be fulfilled in Christ. It provides the New Testament with images, types, and symbols for expressing the life according to the Spirit. 
Finally, the law is completed by the teaching of the sapiential books and the prophets, which set its course toward the new covenant and the kingdom of heaven. There were, under the regimen of the old covenant, people who possessed the charity and grace of the Holy Spirit and longed above all for the spiritual and eternal promises by which they were associated with the new law. Conversely, there exist carnal men under the new covenant, still distanced from the perfection of the new law. The fear of punishment and certain temporal promises have been necessary, even under the new covenant, to incite them to virtuous works. In any case, even though the old law prescribes prescribed charity, it did not give the Holy Spirit, through whom God's charity has been poured into our hearts. That's St. Thomas Aquinas. The new law or the law of the gospel. The new law or the law of the gospel is the perfection here on earth of the divine law, natural and revealed. It is the work of Christ and is expressed particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. It is also the work of the Holy Spirit and through him it becomes the interior law of charity. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit, given to the faithful through faith in Christ. It works through charity. It uses the Sermon on the Mount to teach us what must be done and makes use of the sacraments to give us the grace to do it. If anyone should mediate with devotion and perspicacity on the sermon our Lord gave on the Mount, As we read in the Gospel of St. Matthew, he will doubtless find there the perfect way of the Christian life. This sermon contains all the precepts needed to shape one's life. That too is St. Augustine. The law of the Gospel fulfills, refines, surpasses, and leads the old law to its perfection. In the Beatitudes, the new law fulfills the divine promises by elevating and orienting them toward the kingdom of heaven. It is addressed to those open to accepting this new hope with faith. The poor, the humble, the afflicted, the pure of heart, those persecuted on account of Christ, and so marks out the surprising ways of the kingdom. The law of the gospel fulfills the commandments of the law. The Lord's Sermon on the Mount, far from abolishing or devaluating, excuse me, devaluing the moral prescriptions of the old law, releases their hidden potential and has new demands arise from them. It reveals their entire divine and human truth. It does not add new external precepts, but proceeds to reform the heart, the root of human acts, where man chooses between the pure and the impure, where faith, hope, and charity are formed, and with them the other virtues. The gospel thus brings the law to its fullness through imitation of the perfection of the Heavenly Father, through forgiveness of enemies and prayer for persecutors, in emulation of the divine generosity. The new law practices the acts of religion, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, directing them to the Father who sees in secret, in contrast with the desire to be seen by men. Its prayer is the Our Father. The law of the gospel requires us to make the decisive choice between the two ways and to put into practice the words of the Lord. It is summed up in the golden rule. Whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. This is the law and the prophets. The entire law of the gospel is contained in the new commandment of Jesus, to love one another as he has loved us. To the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, it is fitting to add the moral catechesis of the apostolic teachings, such as Romans chapters 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 13, Colossians chapters 3 through 4, Ephesians chapters 4 through 5, etc. This doctrine hands on the Lord's teaching with the authority of the apostles, particularly in the presentation of the virtues that flow from faith in Christ and are animated by charity, the principal gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Let charity be genuine. Love one another with brother, brotherly affection. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. This catechesis also teaches us to deal with cases of conscience in the light of our relationship to Christ and to the church. The new law is called a law of love because it makes us act out of the love infused by the Holy Spirit rather than from fear. A law of grace because it confers the strength of grace to act by means of faith and the sacraments. A law of freedom because it sets us free from the ritual and juridical observances of the old law inclines us to act spontaneously by the prompting of charity, and finally lets us pass from the condition of a servant who does not know what his master is doing to that of a friend of Christ. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you, or even to the status of son and heir. Besides its precepts, the new law also includes the evangelical councils. The traditional distinction between God's commandments and the evangelical councils is drawn in relation to charity, the perfection of Christian life. The precepts are intended to remove whatever is incompatible with charity. The aim of the councils is to remove whatever might hinder the development of charity, even if it is not contrary to it. The evangelical councils manifest the living fullness of charity, which is never satisfied with not giving more. They attest its vitality and call forth our spiritual readiness. The perfection of the new law consists essentially in the precepts of love of God and neighbor. The councils point out the more direct ways— the readier means, and are to be practiced in keeping with the vocation of each. God does not want each person to keep all the counsels, but only those appropriate to the diversity of persons, times, opportunities, and strengths, as charity requires. For it is charity, as queen of all virtues, all commandments, all counsels, and in short, of all laws and all Christian actions, that gives to all of them their rank, order, time, and value. That's St. Francis de Sales. In brief, according to scripture, the law is a fatherly instruction by God, which prescribes for man the ways that lead to the promised beatitude and proscribes the ways of evil. Law is an ordinance of reason for the common good, promulgated by the one who is in charge of the community. Christ is the end of the law. Only he teaches and bestows the justice of God. The natural law is a participation in God's wisdom and goodness by man formed in the image of his creator. It expresses the dignity of the human person and forms the basis of his fundamental rights and duties. The natural law is immutable, permanent throughout history. The rules that express it remain substantially valid. It is a necessary foundation for the erection of moral rules and civil law. The old law is the first stage of revealed law. Its moral prescriptions are summed up in the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses contains many truths naturally accessible to reason. God has revealed them because men did not read them in their hearts. The old law is a preparation for the gospel. The new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit received by faith in Christ, operating through charity. It finds expression above all in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount and uses the sacraments to communicate grace to us. The law of the gospel fulfills and surpasses the old law and brings it to perfection. Its promises through the beatitudes of the kingdom of heaven, its commandments by reforming the heart, the root of human acts. The new law is a law of love, a law of grace, a law of freedom. Besides its precepts, the new law includes the evangelical councils. The church's holiness is fostered in a special way by the manifold councils which the Lord proposes to his disciples in the gospel. 
This brings us to the end of our reading selection. And I just want to say real quickly that the evangelical councils, I didn't talk about this in the first half of the episode, are poverty, chastity, and obedience. So as that one paragraph reference, depending on our state in life, we might take one, two, or all three of the evangelical councils, um, poverty, chastity, and obedience. So this brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.